All right, and if we can be opening up to Revelation chapter 4. Uh, in many ways, we have we've gone through the parts of Revelation that are easiest to understand. From now on, we have to use our our imagination, and really, that is uh, in preparation for this. I don't know if I said this before, um, but children conceptualize the book of Revelation better than adults do because they have creative juices still flowing and their imagination can fill in blanks. So they see the pictures differently than we do. And I read um, somebody encouraged, hey, read your kids' Revelation. It's like, well, are you sure about that? But they can see, and particularly with chapter 4, seeing, and 4 and 5, seeing God upon his throne Oh, we need this vision, this image to stay with us uh, for, forever, in every moment. All right, God's word in Revelation chapter 4. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold... A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he sat there, the one, uh, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne 24 were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Lord, what a glorious throne room that you have given us a glimpse into. I pray it really would change everything about us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is God showing John and and ultimately to show us. This is God's throne room that happens in real time. It's happening this way right now. So no matter what we're going through, 
This is what, remember, this is coming after all of these letters to the churches and things happening. Jesus is saying, hey, let's get it straight. Remember, I'm on the throne. Now in my old age, I have two sets of glasses that are necessary for life. I have readers, because anything right here is chaos. Just blur. But I also have night vision glasses, I call them, because... The ophthalmologist said that I, um, my eyes are tired after a long day, and so I can't see well at night. <laughs> so I've got distance glasses for night. And I'm, it's, I have glasses. <laughs> I'm, I'm, so you, you know what I'm talking about. I have glass, glasses everywhere because I'll forget to bring the glasses. So we need glasses everywhere. In thinking about Revelation 4 and 5, we'll look at chapter 5 next week, uh, these are sets of glasses to be able to see something. Uh, they're, They're to see near and far, and there are different types of glasses for us to be able to see God amidst how he reigns, but also how to apply it in what we're walking through in the situations of our lives. This is a a new window that's being opened. If you look at Revelation as a whole, there's five windows that Jesus is peeling back a curtain and letting John see through. This opens the sect. Behold, a door. Jesus is showing something else that's going to carry us through the next several chapters of Revelation. Window one was Jesus in his church, and window two is Jesus on his throne. And the pictures reveal to John that he uses metaphors and similes. He looked, the one on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, like an ox, like the face of a man, like an eagle in flight, describing like a a lion, describing the four living creatures. He's using metaphors and similes, trying to figure out how how do I put in words what I'm looking at right now because it's beyond words. These things are revealed to John They're not things that have happened just in the past or will happen in the future. They're happening right now, real time, all the time, forever. Now, we don't know, it's speculation, what, come up here and I will will show you what must take place after this. Not sure what that is. But what we are sure of is the one who is seated on the throne, still on the throne. Jesus showed John what was happening right next to him while he was spending that Sunday on the rock pile on the island of Patmos. We need the glasses also of Revelation 4 and 5 so we can gain the perspective of God over and in and around all of our circumstances. Listen, he's still working the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's still doing that. And he is still working his good in our lives. The promise made through Jeremiah in, in Jeremiah 32.40. Remember, it's a, this is the new covenant. I will never cease to do good to them. I like how he's saying that. It's his goodness running after us. That's what it is. Now, and, and his, his good is still chasing after us for the ultimate goal of getting us and everyone around us to worship him. Remember the promise in 1 Peter 2.9 that God's taken a people for himself that they might proclaim his excellencies who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's worship. So our, our big concept this morning is this. God is reigning right now over your life.
Let that sink in. He is reigning right now over your life. For his glory and your good, so that our worship will be an outflow and overflow of being in his glorious presence. John is welcomed into the reality of God's presence while he is on his throne. We can break this chapter up in really two two parts. One is that God is in glory on his throne. And the second, we see the activity of the throne room, which is worship itself. Now, within the first part, we see all this vision coming together and there's overlap in John's vision of God uh, as he's on his throne with Ezekiel 6, I'm sorry, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Daniel chapter 7. There's just some serious correlation. Now, John may be remembering those to help him understand what he was seeing, or it could be that all four of them saw the exact same thing and they described it in their own personal way. I think they all saw the same thing. But there's key prepositions that need to be uh, drawn out that we need to note because they're, they're describing what it is that John is seeing, the reality that he's seeing. And the first preposition is on. He's on the throne. And I love this fact. There is one on the throne. There's one that rules and reigns over everything. There is one true God who is ever and will ever be on that throne. So already... Hearts are settled. He's in control. He's on the throne. And he's seated. There's no, there's no pacing back and forth in the throne room of God. There's no panic that occurs. There's no wringing of hands. Oh, what are we going to do now? Didn't see this coming. No. Nope. He is on the throne and he is seated on that throne. This throne is in heaven, but it is accessible on earth to God's people in his presence. And the one on the throne has the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Jasper uh, can be a, a variety of colors. It can be red and green, but there's a rare jasper that's blue. Now, I, I, I'm putting this together, and carnelian is a reddish-brown color. But when you think that there... People, you can put characteristics to the jasper and, and how God is represented with that stone. And uh, Jasper and Carnelian were actually the two of the top stones on the breastplate of the high priest when he went in to minister before the Lord in the Lord's presence. So there's carryover, but they're on the breastplate of the high priest because Moses was giving a, given a pattern of what was in heaven. God was giving Moses, hey, this is already in heaven. I want you to do this on earth. So that's why those are represented there. And we can go through and, and we can have God's characteristics correlated to these stones. And that would be okay to do. They, they list his character in, in unique ways. But I think when it's combined with the emerald rainbow, we have three colors. I think blue, red, and green. That when you combine all of those colors, you know what you get? White. You know, when you take the rainbow, all the Roy G. Bib, the spectrum of the rainbow, and you squish them all together, you get white. I think God is describing who he is in his varied phases as he exists. Well, phases makes it like he's not one. No, he's all of them all at the same time. But when you put all of them together, he dwells, like Paul tells Timothy, in unapproachable light. 
Same as Jesus revealing himself on the Mount of Transfiguration to his disciples, his clothes, he began to glow and become radiant and it bleached his clothes white. It had the effect on what he was wearing. God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Even Paul goes to, he goes to worship. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Remember those old projectors that had the three cones? Remember what colors those cones were? Blue, red, and green. Remember those big honking projectors? They were huge. And when you blend them, you get all the colors of the spectrum. But God is being revealed. His light is being revealed in his throne room. But there's another preposition. It's around, around the throne. What's around the throne? A rainbow, this emerald rainbow that's, this emerald that's in the shape of a rainbow. And we know the rainbow represents from the Old Testament and the flood and God promising never to judge the earth by water again. He's a rainbow. And, and when we see a rainbow today, we have to recognize it's a sign of God's mercy that something else will take judgment so we don't have to. With every rain and we see that rainbow, it's a call to those who face God's judgment to repent and to trust in him. Uh, years ago, I, I came across an explanation of a rainbow. Remember when uh, that's helpful for us, and I used it with kids, and it, it's helpful, so I give this to you to pass on. Do it with adults, too, who act like kids. Um, remember, God said he put his bow in the sky. We call it a rainbow because it comes out, it rains that time. He called it a bow. What's a bow? It's a weapon of war. So when you look at the bow that's in the sky, it's arced, meaning it's stretched. And if we think, if the, if the horizon is the string, it's ready to be shot. The arrow is ready to be shot. And where is it pointing? Up. God is saying, I will take your judgment so you can be spared. Now, that's pretty cool, huh? It's like, hmm. Yeah, we'll use that. We'll use that. I remember doing that with Owen one time we were driving across the lake several years ago. And I, I rehearsed that with him and... Oh, yeah, that really is really cool. I had one of my teenage girls in the car. She was like, that was good. Did you come up with that? I was like, no, I'm, I heard that from somebody else. I have no original material. I just, the Holy Spirit gives it to all of us, and we just keep on saying it. That's what we do. But here, his throne room is enveloped in mercy. What awesome picture. And we, we read that there's 24 elders there on their own thrones. Now remember, when we come to numbers, a guiding principle, is more, the numbers are more about quality than quantity. Uh, they're more representative of what's going on. The 24 can be seen as two sets of 12. Now remember, in the Old Testament, we had 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, we have the 12 apostles. And when we consider that they have white garments on, remember those are promised to those who conquer in Sardis and repent in Sardis and Laodicea, gold crowns, the Philadelphians were told, don't let anybody seize your crown. We see that these 24 elders represent the redeemed of God's people. 
And you think about it this way. that One set of 12 represents everybody before Jesus. And the other set of 12 with the apostles would represent everybody after Jesus. Those who are redeemed before he came. Those who are redeemed after he has come. But they're his. Look, this is what, this is what God surrounds himself with. Mercy and those who are the objects of his mercy. Which means this. If we have been shown mercy, we belong there. No matter what the devil himself tries to convince us that we don't belong there. So he is on the throne. We see what's around the throne. And there's something coming from the throne. Flashes of light. Rumblings and peals of thunder. We see this in Exodus 19.16. When God appears to his people on Mount Sinai. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. There's also something very powerful about this throne room. There's, and that happens with the Lord. We have this sense of mercy, but we also recognize he's God. He's powerful. And we'll see as we go through uh, the, the next several chapters, his voice, this, these lightnings and thunders, they, they represent his voice and what he tells and commands is supposed to happen. But it's also showing us that the God who's on the throne that reigned over the Exodus and saved his people from the, the angel of death during Passover, same God who exists in that today. But we have to notice something. God doesn't lift a finger to do things. He speaks. He speaks. Because remember, he's seated on the throne and everything is working according to plan. He speaks. That's why words have such life. So that's... What was that one? From the throne. Now, before the throne, we see this. There are seven tortures. Tortures. No. That would not be merciful. Seven torches. <laughs> seven torches. Flames of fire that are there. Uh, maybe you could think of the seven-candled menorah, where it's got three on either side and one in the middle to make seven. Uh, remember, it's the pattern that's being given. So probably the the the... Light stand that we read in the tabernacle and then uh, Solomon put in the temple that was built. It could be the same thing because God gave instructions on how to do that. Uh, I think it is. I think it's more of a menorah looking structure in there. And, but God is, is providing these seven torches, what we're told, uh, torches, they represent the seven spirits of God. Now, the, the number seven represents completeness. So these torches... This fire represents God doing his complete work to save us and sustain us in the power of the Spirit. It represents his Spirit coming to us and redeeming us and making the truth wake up in our hearts to where we said, I need this. It's all by God's grace and he sustains us in our life with him. He doesn't just turn on the switch and make us pay for the bill. He says, no, I'm turning the lights on and I'm giving you the light. So keep on being in the light. And then we're, we read that there's a sea of glass. As it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This is a powerful image for everybody. Uh, in our 
Our forecasting days, remember the technology of forecasting is very, very new to human existence. Very new. Even the charting that's been happening of hurricanes has only goes back to the early 1900s. They didn't pay attention to that stuff. I think mainly because they were afraid of it. Throughout human history, the sea was represented, uh, has represented chaos and turmoil that is to be feared. Storms that came up out of nowhere were considered the forces of angry gods attacking or disciplining their people. Now, even in Scripture, we see this. Remember Jonah? Jonah's running from God. Sea, uh, the storm comes, the sea is raging, and what's everybody doing with casting lots? We've got to figure out whose God's mad. We, let's cast lots and figure out who that is. Now it was, and Jonah says, it's me. The lot was cast to Jonah. God's coming after me. So God really did use the sea to get everybody's attention. But then Jonah says, throw me into it. Now, did Jonah, I don't know if he knew something particular about God, that it would call him. I think Jonah wanted to die rather than go to Nineveh. He didn't, he was, he hated Assyria. Didn't want to go there, obviously. That's the whole story. He's running in the opposite direction. So he's just throw me in. What did the guys do? Uh, we're not going to do that. That's like, that's too harsh. Just to say a prayer or something. But he gets thrown into the sea, and by that sacrifice, what? All things are calm. Now that points to what Jesus would do because Jesus wasn't just thrown into some water. He was thrown into the furious wrath of God. And listen, it was calmed toward us. He took that wrath away. We see with Noah and the flood, Moses and the Red Sea, Jesus with his disciples in the Sea of Galilee. Remember, the, the, the storm comes up out of nowhere. The waves are crashing over the boat. These are experienced fishermen. They're terrified. This is not something they've seen before or experienced before. Where is Jesus? Sleeping on a cushion at the bottom of the boat. He gets up. Peace. Be still. And it obeys him. Jesus, in that moment, he showed them, hey, guys, got this. See, because my father's feet, they're resting on a sea of glass. There's no waves. He does it again. Jesus does it again when he walks on the water. There was wind blowing. This, isn't, this wasn't still when Jesus is walking. He's got to step over waves. It's, I would like to ask him when we get to heaven, like, what was that like? How, how much of your leg got wet? Jesus, how did you do that? See, because where Jesus walks, it's a sea of glass. There is nothing to fear. That's why every step that he took, Jesus took on this earth, he trusted his father's control. Psalm 107, 29 foreshadows what Jesus did with his disciples. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. So church, dear friends, what do you fear? What chaos and turmoil lurks over you or follows you around? Listen, Jesus rules over the sea. It's, it's calm, like glass, not even a ripple. And he rules over that sea so it becomes like glass 
in our hearts so our hearts will not give way. And then the second half of this chapter, we see the activity of the throne room, which is worship itself. We're introduced to four living creatures. Now, if you can watch movies or see pictures or perhaps uh, see the description, even King Solomon's description of his throne room we have in the Old Testament. Uh, Many kings have had stone creatures that are around them that represent power. God doesn't need stone creatures. These are alive. And these are freaky looking beings. One's got a face of a lion, head of a lion, but it's got six wings, eyes all around. It's a little weird. But I think they're representative, but but catch this. God is so powerful. can, Can you imagine a king having actual live lions around him without tamers with their little poking sticks? No, it's good. Just Leo the lion right there. He just hangs around here all day and, and he roars occasionally. But don't, don't be afraid of that. No, everybody would be afraid of that. But God, he's got live beings around him because he's in control. And it demonstrates and points to his power. These creatures have dual representations. I think they represent God's character as well as his creativity. It does show us He's creative in what he does, but, but in his creative uh, work with these living creatures, he's revealing something of himself. The lion is, uh, consider it this way, it's the mightiest of all wild animals, and the ox is the mightiest of all domesticated animals, the strongest of all that help uh, take care of man. There's the face of a man, which, which is the mightiest of all God's creative work as we are image bearers of his glory. And then there's an eagle in flight. He's the mightiest of the sky. So God is saying, everywhere that you think is the most powerful thing, I'm more powerful than that. Because I can have it living right in front of me and it still obeys me. Altogether, they show off God's power that he is the mighty one. He is, as they're they're singing, Lord God, almighty. He's the almighty one. And he's given these living creatures eyes all around and within and six wings. Think of three sets of two. We see that in Isaiah Isaiah 6. And these eyes, yeah, it went Australian on you, Isaiah. (laughs) Don't know where that came from. But they represent his omniscience. He sees everything. He flies everywhere. He's everywhere all the same time. He is God. Almighty. He's everywhere at the same time. He remember, we're reminded in Psalm 121, verse 4, he doesn't slumber or sleep. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There are so many times that we're tempted to think that God's taking a nap on our lives. And he's not. He's working his will, his good, perfect will. And then what are they doing? These four living creatures. This is bizarre in and of itself. You don't hear a lion singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. But that's what he's doing. These four living creatures are worshiping God. And listen, they never stop worshiping. This is both an encouragement, but help me. When I was, when I was a teenager and very excited 
people wanting to get to heaven would describe heaven like this. Heaven is just going to be one awesome worship service for thousands and millions and trillions of years. Well, as a teenager, I was like, that doesn't seem fun to me. Because sometimes I like to sit down. Sometimes I'm just irritated by the song. Now, thankfully, I have a renewed mind and body to be able to endure those things. But that is, that's, that's a huge aspect of heaven. We know from Scripture that's not the only thing heaven is. That we rule with Christ. We don't just rule like, hey, taking a break from what I'm ruling because I've got to worship. Got to do that. No, heaven is much, much more. But catch what heaven is. Heaven is all about worship. Holy, holy, holy. These four living creatures, they can't stop saying it. God does not have, listen, God does not have this weird soundtrack in his throne room because he's an egomaniac, okay? This is not like, hey, remind me who I am. No, because when you're in his presence, you will worship because it completes our joy. It completes the experience. It's like when we watch a team score and something has to come out, we we shout something or lift our hands. It's completing an experience. Our worship together completes the experience of joy. And God wants us to experience his joy. So we worship. He's given it to us as a gift The 24 elders, they get involved in the worship as well. They fall down and they cast their... Oh, I love this. Cast their thrones before him. As if to say, we didn't earn this. This isn't ours, it's yours. And Jesus would say, no, it's my gift to you. But they're they're coming to him and they're bowing low. The Greek word for worship means to bow toward That's what they're doing. They're worshiping. They're bowing toward him. And they're saying of him, you're worthy. You're worthy. And how good of it is for us to be reminded that he's the one that's worthy of it all. Like we sang earlier, he is worthy. And no matter how we are trying to uh, uh, smuggle ourselves into feeling worthy in a a self-centered, selfish way, manipulating God for what we want, God says, don't do that. You're worthy because I call you that. And that's a gift we give back to him. He calls us worthy. We give it right back to him. No, you're worthy. That's that's part of the crown being thrown before him. He is worthy. He is God Almighty. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of everything. And the sad reality that sin brought into this world is that while all things worship God, rebellious man does not. All creation worships him. The farthest star worships him. The smallest particle worships him. The tallest tree worships him. The widest canyon worships him. The seashore worships him. The sunset worships him. Thousands of those starlings flying in swarms that make these really cool pictures worships him. Man doesn't feel like it. Because we don't see his worth. We need to see his worth. Man too often looks for God to meet his need in order to be worthy of his worship rather than see the work of Jesus and what God has done to redeem us and to complete our joy by simply saying, you're worthy. Nothing else matters. You're worthy. 
You're worthy. So what we do in response is that we, we see him and we worship. We're going to move into a time of communion together. Um, you know, thankfulness stirs worship. What I've done for years, and, and my wife has probably asked you to do this already if you've had any conversation with her ever. What I have learned to do is when people are, are just walking through pain and suffering or walking through struggle, write 10 things down that you can be thankful for. And when you're finished with those 10, write another 10 different ones. Because you know what thankfulness does? Stirs our hearts to worship. When we come to the communion table, we're coming out of thankfulness. And it stirs our hearts to worship. So if you would, please come down the center aisle, receive the elements, and then bring those elements back with you to your chair, and we'll take them together.
with that cup, he said, it's the cup of the new covenant, which enacted all the promises from the prophets, that you would put your spirit within us, you would write your law upon our hearts, and you would not write them on stone hearts, you write them on I will rejoice in doing them good. 